If you would, please now turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We will look this evening at verses 7 through 12. Here again, the word of God Almighty. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. Please pray with me. Father, your word is truth, and you are a refuge to all who seek you. We ask, O God, for your help, your help in hearing your word, your help in preaching your word. O Lord, let it be edifying to your saints and honoring to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard of a man who went to the doctor saying that he thinks he's allergic to water. The doctor said, I don't know if that's likely. I don't even know if that's possible. And he said, tell me why you think you're allergic to water. He said, well, every night before I go to bed, I drink whiskey and water, and every morning I wake up with a headache, and I'm pretty sure it's got to be the water. Well, we sometimes confuse the cause and effect of things. We sometimes confuse the correlations of things with the causes of things. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is dealing with that very same kind of confusion. Someone may have gotten the impression from some of the other things that he said that the law was sin. And the Apostle says, the law is neither sin nor the cause of sin. That's going to be our first point. The second point we are going to look at this evening is that the law reveals or brings knowledge of sin. And then our third point is going to be that the law itself is holy and righteous and good. So first of all, the law is neither sin nor the cause of sin. Verse 7 begins with the question, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, the term law here, remember, throughout Romans, we've had to look at various ways in which the apostle uses the term law. And in this verse, it's pretty clear that he's referring to the moral law, which is summarized in those Ten Commandments that we just sang together. Sang, is that the past tense of sing? So those Ten Commandments. And this is clear in the second half of verse 7, which specifically references the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. So it's clear then that the apostle in context of this passage is speaking of what we call the moral law or the Ten Commandments. But the question then and its answer are designed to correct what would be a misunderstanding of the law of God. And that misunderstanding might flow from something he said back in verse 5. He said in verse 5 of chapter 7, when we were in the flesh, that is to say before being converted to Christ, when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. 
Now, as I said last time, the word arouse is not actually in the passage, but nevertheless, sinful passions were working through the law to bring death. And someone might hear that and think, well, then is the law, how does the law relate to sin? If it's really through the law that sin works, maybe the law itself is sinful. And so maybe we need to be um, apart or freed from the law in the sense that the moral law is actually part of the problem. Someone might incorrectly assume that the law itself is sinful, or perhaps the law itself causes sin. But I want you to understand that if the law, in fact, in its design and in its nature, were the cause of sin, then the law itself would be sinful, right? Because if something causes sin, that in itself is sinful. And we could, there's a sense in which we could say, um, we saw this back in Romans chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 4, that where there is no law, there is no transgression, right? So you could legitimately say, if there is no law, there is no sin. And we know this from experience as well. If there's no commandment governing something, there's no transgression of that commandment. The Apostle John, remember, he says that sin is transgression of the law. So if you take away the law, you can't have a transgression of it by definition. So from this, we can truly say that if there were no law, there would be no sin. But from this, we cannot say that the law itself is sin, nor can we say that the law is the cause of sin. To do so would be to cause the correlation, the relationship of law and sin, with the causation of the law towards sin. Two things may occur together and not be identical to each other, and two things may occur together and not be one the cause of the other. For example, suppose a city hired more policemen, and one month after hiring more policemen, it occurred to them that they made more arrests in that month than they had ever made before. Would you reason on the basis of that, that more policemen caused more crime? Well, hopefully not. It would be more likely that there was always crime, but the presence of more policemen simply apprehended more of the criminals. Similarly, one might suppose that cancer screening causes cancer, because everyone who's diagnosed with cancer also underwent cancer screening in the diagnosis of that cancer. Obviously, we understand screening, getting tested for cancer, doesn't cause the cancer, but rather it is the screening for cancer that reveals the cancer which was already there. Well, police, at least good police, are not the cause of sin, or excuse me, the cause of crime, and cancer screening is not the cause of cancer, and neither is the law the cause of sin. Thus, the apostle answers his own question. Is the law sin? Well, here in verse 7, certainly not. But if the law is not sin, nor the cause of sin, what is its relationship to sin? How can it be so closely related to it, such that it occurs together with it, and yet not itself be sinful? Well, that brings us to our second point. The law not being sin actually brings knowledge of sin. The second part of verse 7 starts this way. On the contrary, Paul says, now he's getting autobiographical. Notice this. 
I would not have known sin except through the law. The law is related to sin in this way. It brings knowledge of sin. The same truth was stated back in chapter 3. We read, by the law is the knowledge of sin. In fact, the law, as you will notice here, is the only way to actually properly know sin. Paul says, except, I would not have known the law, excuse me, not have known sin, except by the law. Now we might ask, okay, so if the law brings knowledge of sin, how does it bring knowledge of sin? And in this passage, we see three ways that the law brings knowledge of sin. From here down through verse 11, we're going to see three ways that the law brings knowledge of sin. First of all, the law defines sin, right? Just like the commandment Paul referenced, right? You shall not covet. That tells us that's what it is that God forbids. It defines a sin. This is saying this is the will of God for you. You shall not covet. The law of God is a transcript, as it were, an impression of God's own holy character, and it reveals to us his will, what he desires of his creatures. You might say that the law is that straight edge against which we compare ourselves. Now, if the law of God forbids something, then it is a sin to do that which God forbids. Likewise, if the law requires something, it is a sin for us to fail to do that thing. That is how we know what sin is. The law itself defines sin for us. Now remember that the law of God, the moral law, is eternal and unchanging. It's perfect. It needs no addition or subtraction. It's a reflection of the character of God. It is, as we said, a transcript of God's own Character, Therefore, nothing can change it. Nothing can add to it or take away from it. Conversely, if God calls a... First of all, let me say it this way. If God calls a thing a sin, it is a sin no matter what anyone else may say. Much of the work of the devil is to convince us that what God says is sin is not sin. Surely you will not die, he told the woman, right? Much of the devil's work in this world is trying to convince us that that which God says is sin is not sin. Well, we mustn't fall for that. Remember, the law is here to tell us what sin is. If the law calls a thing sin, it is because God calls it sin. Now, related to that, if God says a thing is not a sin, then there is nothing in creation that can make that thing a sin. And this, by the way, is a sense of freedom for us. That is to say, we are free from the bondage of commandments that are invented by men, right? We always have to obey the law, but we are not bound to obey as a religious duty, as a duty towards God, commandments that men make up. We are free from them because it is God's law, not man, that defines sin. All right, so the law, first of all, brings knowledge of sin by defining us. It draws the circle, right, and says everything inside of this circle is good. Everything outside of this circle is sin. The second way that the law brings to us knowledge of sin is in verse 8. The law draws out 
and exposes sin. The law draws out and exposes sin. Verse 8 says this, Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For, apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, at first glance, this may sound to us like sin is taking advantage of the law as if there were some weakness or defect in the law. On the contrary, this is actually a description of God setting a trap for sin. He is baiting a trap in order to lure sin out of hiding in order that it may be seen for what it is and exposed. And once it's captured, then it can be dealt with. Sin, as you know, likes to hide in dark corners. It likes to hunt by ambush, as it were. It comes upon goodness. It hates goodness, right? So sin always comes upon goodness, and when it sees it, wants to devour it. And then it wants to slither off again and, and, and go back to its hiding places. But God uses the law, which provokes sin, to bring sin out of hiding. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. Before our first parents fell, there was sin in the creation, wasn't there? Just, moment, just before them, in the serpent, right? The serpent who had rebelled against God and brought the temptation to them. And isn't it interesting what drew him out? was that God gave the man and woman a law. And that law proved to be to him too tempting. If God says something, sin always wants to transgress that law. And so when there is a law set down by God, and when the law comes to you, it stirs up and wakes up that sin, which was, in a sense, dead. Right? For apart from the law, sin was dead. This is to say that sin was unknown to us. It was dormant, unobserved. Now, sin can't resist breaking God's law. Therefore, when the law comes, sin comes out of hiding. But I want you to know that sin doesn't just hide in far-off places. The middle of verse 8 says this, Sin produced in me all manner of evil desires. From this, we learn two things. First, that evil desires, desires for evil, being produced by sin, are properly called sin. Right? Sin gives rise to sin. This means that prior to desires, there is sin. And then sin produces evil desires, and then evil desires produce evil actions. But do you see how sin is at the front, is behind all of that. So when you think of the passage in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and when she talks about sin, uh, when, when desire gives birth to sin, uh, desire is full grown and gives birth to sin and sin to death, all the way back, those desires are sinful, and before that, there is something sinful residing in the man. And that's the second thing I want you to notice here in the middle of verse 8. The sin which we have been discussing so far is sort of like that serpent dwelling in the garden, but in this case, it's dwelling inside of us. You see, in the opening chapters of Genesis, sin had not yet become one with man. But since chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, sin now inhabits man. So the sin that we are discussing is very near to us. In fact, it dwells inside of us. Paul says, it produced in me. 
these desires. Sin is like some terrible disease that's inside the body and it's in every cell and it spreads all throughout. But while that sin dwells within us like an alien or some kind of disease, it might go by unnoticed if not for the work of the law. Here is the thing. Even if the sin went by unnoticed and it never produced a sinful act, it never did anything, it just lied dormant in you, the sentence for that sin is still condemnation. Right? So even if you never committed a sin, an act of sin that is, you are still already guilty by that sin that dwells within you. In fact, whose sin is it, beloved? Is it not your sin that lives inside of you? But it would remain unknown if not for the law. You see, we're talking about how the law brings knowledge of sin. And at the end of verse 8, he says, apart from the law, sin was dead. And as we said, that means that sin was unobserved. It was inactive. It was not um, apparent to us. Until it was drawn out and exposed, sin was hidden. Now, the third way that the law brings us knowledge of sin is here in verses 9 through 11. And that's it convicts us of sin. All right? So the, the sin uh, is, first of all, defined by the law. Secondly, it's drawn out and exposed by the law of God. And here's the third way. It convicts us of sin. Convicts us of our guilt in sin. We find a description of this process in verses 9 through 11, Paul says, I was alive once without the law. When he says he was alive once, what he means is he was happy. He, was not, he did not fear punishment. He thought he was good with God. So he, when he says he's alive, he, he means that he did, not, he did not know he was under the sentence of death. But when the commandment came, verse 9, sin revived and I died. Okay, the commandment came and it woke up that serpent because the sin wanted to attack that which is good. Sin revived and I died. Now in his conscience, he's aware of the problem. He's condemned. He's in a state of sin and misery. And he learned this because the law came and provoked his sin. Verse 10, and the commandment, by the way, don't get bothered by its law in one instance and commandment in the next. He's talking specifically about the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and one of those, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is the commandment. He's speaking specifically, he uses covetousness for a good reason here. That is because coveting is one of those sins that you can commit inside, right? It begins with desire, and it's forbidden by God. God forbids even your desires. And so he uses that as an example because that is the sin that lives deep down inside of you. And no one else will even know about it. Just you and God. So he says, the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Understand that that's the purpose of God's law. Life, goodness. God's law is harmless. It is good. We read in the psalm, it is the goodness of the law of God. It's meant to bring life. But because of the sin that dwelled in him, 
it brought about death. It showed him his guilt. By the way, this, I don't know if I should, there's a, there's a, a radio host, Dennis Prager. I doubt he's watching, but if you are Dennis Prager, this is for you. Um, he talks about um, uh, adultery, obviously, is a violation of the seventh commandment. But he teaches that uh, pornography or lusting cannot be a violation of the seventh commandment because sin can only be a sin when it's performed outwardly. But this commandment, the tenth commandment, which says you shall not covet, shows that he's exactly wrong. The whole point of this is that sin starts in the desires. In fact, indwelling sin is what produces evil desires. And even if it never gets beyond those desires, it is already a transgression of the law of God. So, so uh, the modern-day Pharisee is incorrect. All right. Um, so Paul says sin took the occasion by the commandment, meaning when the commandment was, it was like the Lord setting a mousetrap and putting some peanut butter on it. And the law saw the peanut butter, or excuse me, sin saw the peanut butter and sought to grab it. Now it's trapped, it's exposed. So Paul, in saying that he was alive once, we understand that means he was blissfully unaware of the danger. His conscience was undisturbed when the commandment came. What does this mean? It means he heard the law. He understood it. He perceived it. It made its way from his ears to his heart. He perceived then his sin and misery. He was aware of the danger he was in. There's a sense in which our conscience, right, the, the part of us that accuses us and excuses us, the part of us that, that decides whether we are guilty or innocent according to the law of God. You might think of your conscience as sort of like the nerves to your soul. Right? We have nerves in our body. We have nerves in our hand. And, and if we touch something that is hot, those nerves inform our brain that that is hot and dangerous and we pull our hand back. That's kind of how the conscience works. And Paul here is describing how his conscience was awakened through the law. He was made aware of the danger of sin. But it felt like he was dying because it showed him he was a man worthy of death. He was under the sentence and the condemnation of having broken God's law. Now this law, we said it was intended for life and it brings death. And this means that the conscience has, a move, has moved from this state of ignorance and bliss, right? This blissful naivety to a state of conviction. And he explains that sin now is taking occasion of the commandment. It deceived him. Interesting. And it deceived me. Where have we heard that before? Is that not what our first mother said? The serpent deceived me and I ate. By the way, deception is when you have an expectation for one thing and you end up experiencing another. Right? You get sold a bill of goods. And that's what happens with sin. Sin always promises something, but what does it deliver? Death. Always. But this brought him to understand the danger that he was in. He was a sinner. He never would have known that he was a sinner had it not been for the law that said, don't do this, and for the awareness that brought to him that he was doing what God said not to do. Not only was he doing what God said not to do, it wasn't just doing it with his hands, but he was doing it in his heart. And he found that every time the law said don't covet, something inside of him wanted to covet. 
That was sin dwelling in him. Paul was a sinner, and he was guilty, and he deserved condemnation. But he only understood this when the law came, and he observed the response. So the law brings knowledge of sin by defining it, by exposing it, and by convicting us of the guilt of it. The law is not sin. The law brings knowledge of sin. We finally come now to the last point. This is in verse 12. The law is holy, righteous, and good. Or as the King James trans- or New King James says, the law is holy, just, and good. The word holy, excuse me, the word righteous and just are a translation of the same word. They both mean basically the same thing. Now, verse 12 is a confirmation of the truth which the apostle first stated back in verse 7. The law is not sin. All right? And here's the logic. Sin is, by definition, unholy, unrighteous, and evil. Right? The law, however, is holy, righteous, and good. It's antithetical to sin. The law cannot be sin. The law is the very opposite of sin. Sin is, in fact, the contradiction of the law. The law being an expression, then, of God's own holy character is holy, righteous, and good. Do you see how God is holy? He is separate from sin. He is righteous. He does justice only. He only gives to everyone what is just and due and good. God is beneficial, right? He is kind. He is loving. So too with his law. There is no darkness in God, no evil in God, nor is there any darkness or evil in his law. Now, this is what the reformers call the excellencies of the law of God, right? The law is excellent. It is a good thing. It is a a, a supreme good for mankind, And since it is holy, righteous, and good, since it is so excellent, it follows that the law is of great benefit to those who would seek holiness, to those who would seek righteousness, to those who would seek goodness. If you want goodness, righteousness, holiness, the place where that is taught to you is in the law of God. I want to conclude this evening with just some ways that the law of God can be of use to you. Now, before I do that, I want to say... We notice something in the verses we just read is that the apostle seems to be describing himself prior to being converted, right? We, we see that he's describing the conviction of sin that brought about his repentance and then his faith in Christ and his salvation. And this is one way that the law is useful to everyone, believer and unbeliever. In fact, what the apostle describes here for an unbeliever actually works principally the same way for a believer. That is to say, the law still works in this way, bringing to us the knowledge of sin. All right, but before we proceed with the uses, let me make a couple of clarifications about the law. First of all, we are not under the law as a covenant of works. We are not under the law as a covenant of works. What I mean by that is this. In the covenant of works, the condition for life was obedience. That's a covenant of works. We belong to the covenant of grace. We are given life in the forgiveness of our sins on the condition of faith in Jesus Christ. 
That was the same for everyone, starting with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way through. Okay, we are not under the law as a covenant of works. We are, however, along with all mankind, under the law as a rule of life. Observe the difference here. Covenant of works is life on the condition of obedience. Rule of life is a description of God's desires, right? We, we do not gain life by the law as a rule of life, but it tells us how we ought to live. As Christians, we are not only freed from the law as a covenant of works, but we are also delivered from two other things, the condemnation of the law and the curse of the law. In other words, when you break the law under the covenant of works, you deserve hell. We are freed as Christians from condemnation. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is freed from the condemnation of the law. There's also what is called the curse of the law. The curse of the law. We are freed from that. The curse of the law is that the law is to the unbeliever a harsh and strict and unobtainable standard. Right? It is something that they can only be opposed to. Sin in them only allows them to hate it. They can never, ever obey it with sincerity. They can never obey it in a way that is pleasing to God. Christians are freed from that curse. Right? We are freed from that curse. Jesus became a curse for us. And he took upon himself our condemnation. Now then, having said that, here are some things as, let me remind you of this, I'm sorry. Non-Christians are still under the condemnation and the curse of the law, right? They're still guilty in Adam, and they are still under the curse of the law. They will be punished for their breaking of God's law. All right, as Christians, here are just a couple of ways that this holy, righteous, and good law is of use to us. First of all, as a rule of life, it teaches us what is pleasing to God and what is displeasing to God. If you want to know what God likes and dislikes, here's the answer. It is what is set down in his law. That has not changed since God created the world. It has not changed since before God created the world. And it is not changing now, and it will not change for eternity. The law, again, is a transcript, a, an expression of God's own holy character. If you want to know what he likes, it's in his law. If you want to know what he dislikes, it's in his law. It teaches us our duties and gives us directions for following God. Some Christians think that they have no place for the law of God in their life, and I wonder where are they going? Because the law of God gives directions for following God. Secondly, the law reveals our sins. We've talked about that, and that's a large part of the message here in this section of Scripture. The law brings to us knowledge of sin, but here's what I want you to know. Knowledge of sin is a necessary part of conviction and repentance, right? You cannot repent of a sin if you don't know that it's there. By the way, you cannot be saved if you don't repent. Do you understand that? You cannot expect forgiveness of sins without repentance. But you cannot repent without knowledge of sin. Therefore, it does you well to regularly examine the law and rather let the law examine you to look for sin that you may repent of it. 
Number three, the law also teaches us the perfection of Christ's own obedience and increases our gratitude to him and strengthens our reliance upon him. As we seek the forgiveness of our sins for violating the law, and we seek his power in order that we may be freed from sin. Jesus Christ obeyed the law of God in every facet his entire life. Consider the fact that your Savior submitted himself to the law which God gave to mankind. And he obeyed it perfectly. Now it's not the case that he obeyed it so that you never have to. I know sometimes Christians like to think that way. Jesus kept the law, therefore I don't have to. And I know they don't say it that way, but let's be honest. That's the substance of it, isn't it? No, but we should admire Christ and praise him for the perfection with which he kept the law of God. But it should also increase our gratitude towards him. Our gratitude towards him for a couple of reasons. One, that he submitted himself to the law. But two, having obeyed the law, he suffered willingly the penalty for disobedience to the law. It wasn't his disobedience that cost him his life. It was my disobedience. Therefore, seeing his obedience of it and my disobedience of that same law and then looking at the results, which is eternal life and forgiveness of sins to me, ought to increase my gratitude. Fourthly, the law, because it warns us and threatens us for disobeying, is of use in restraining our sins. The law makes many threats and warnings and tells us bad things will happen to us when we break it. God uses that to fight our sin, to restrain our sins. It's one of the ways in which we fight sin by applying to ourselves the law of God and believing its threats and warnings and acting differently upon hearing them. Related to this one, but I'll break it up. Uh, the fifth one, the law, because it offers promises and blessings for obedience, is of use to the Christian as an encouragement to do good. When you read a law of God and it promises a blessing for obedience to it, that reveals to you God's desire for your obedience and his desire to bless you when you do so. We read this in Psalm 19.11, and this kind of brings the two of these together. But Psalm 19.11 says, By them, that is the commandments of God, the law of God, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, that is the commandments of God, there is great reward. This is the word of God, beloved. The psalmist says there is reward in keeping the commandments of God. Now, am I telling you that you are earning your salvation before God because you keep his commandments? No, I am telling you that God promised great rewards to those who by faith keep his commandments. So is the law sin? No. No, the law is not sin. In fact, the law brings knowledge of sin, and it is by knowledge of sin that we see our need for a Savior who not only forgives our sins, but also promises to free us from sin. And a means of freeing us from that sin is nothing less than the law of God, which is holy and righteous and good. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for your law, for its goodness, 
for its righteousness, for its holiness. Forgive us for having transgressed your law. And Lord God, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a curse for us, who bore upon himself the penalty for our transgressions. Grant to us, O God, hearts of repentance. Increase our faith in you. Give us the grace by which we can follow after you with our whole hearts. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.